Welcome to the Amplifier Podcast, the show where the best in business discuss how you can grow your business best. I'm Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and this episode, Don Cooper is joined again by the ambassador of hope himself, Andre Norman. On his second of three episodes in this series, Andre will be with us discussing where racial disparity comes from in America, with a strong focus on his own personal experience in the legal system, in schools, and more. Again, I truly mean it when I say that Andre's story and his mission are some of the most inspiring out there, so do make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss our final episode with Andre. And as always, I truly do hope you enjoy this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. In the prison system in the United States, 25% of the world is in prison in the United States, but there's also a disproportionate amount of, of black young men who are in prison in the United States. Like, What's that all about? Well, black people make up about six, 12% of the country. And if you say it's 50, 50 men, women, that makes black men 60% of the country. And yep. if you say between the ages of 18 and 30 or 35 is half of that, you're talking about 3% of the country. So 3% of the country is 18 to 35. And right. 3% of the country makes up almost 40% of the prison system. So you've got 3% of the country makes up 40% of the prison system, which is probably half of the population in the world. And that's not by accident. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just, it's a system that was originally built during a time where black people were not really thought of well. You built a system where some people didn't care about, which we understand in the 1700s and the 1800s and early 1900s. Black folks were inferior, we were three-fifths of a man, we were slaves, we were a lot of stuff in the eyes of those who were in charge. They built laws and policies to govern in that time. As we've moved forward, the mindset hasn't shifted in everybody. And there's a contingent of people who say, well, get rid of them. We wish we could put them on a boat and send them back to Africa. There's some people who say, well, we want to keep them. So it's that back and forth of... Once there's a group of people who don't like us, there's a group of people who do like us. There are too many people who've been released from prison every year for the last 10 years, but DNA and other proof that says they never did it. This flat out never did it. Too many cases have come across the tables where it just flat out never did it. Guy did 20, 30, 40, 50 years in jails for crimes they didn't commit and let them out, let them out, let them out. And nobody's saying, well, how did that happen? Well, let's go back 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. If a white person said you were guilty, you were guilty. Right. That's it. That's all you really needed was a white person to say you did it. If it was a cop, if it was a witness, if it was a store clerk, if something, it should be any black guy would do. And so now we're like getting to the place of reform. How do we fix this? How do we fix this? And then it's compounded again with, okay, well, how, how do we justify locking black men up unjustly for the last 40, 50 years. And if we admit it, what's, what, are we, what are we culpable for as white folks? And so it's to the point now where the system is just built wrong. If I get arrested today and I don't have money to pay bail, I'll sit in jail for two or three years waiting trial. If you get arrested today and you can pay bail, you walk out tomorrow. And since I can't afford a lawyer, I'm apt to get shafted and the lawyer's gonna tell me to take a deal if I did it or not. You might've done it, but if you have a great lawyer, you're going home. OJ case, prime example. Best lawyer's money could buy. Had I been OJ, I'd have been guilty in three months. 
you probably wouldn't have even went to trial. You probably would have had some lawyer who said, hey, just take a deal so they don't put you to death or some crazy thing. Person, I know Jay's death row. Right. So our, our system was set up based on race, but it's now running based on money. So I'm not even going to say it's 100% month race based anymore. It's definitely 90% financially based because rich people go home. Yep. Rich people go home. And our system of justice shouldn't be predicated on how much money you have. So rich people can commit crimes and go home. If you're connected and commit a crime, you can go home. So if you're a senator and your son does something, you go home. <laughs> if you're a bus driver and your son does something and you're black, you go to jail. Our system is set up based on haves and have-nots. And mm -hmm. that's, that's what it is. And we've never resolved the race issues between white and black people. So there's always that dynamic of, damn, we still got the slavery thing hanging around that we've never really addressed. We've never really addressed slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, civil rights, busing. We ain't addressed none of it. We've kind of got past it, but we've never addressed. You got black millionaires now. You got black billionaires now. So we're good now, right? But you have a whole generation of people who've been traumatized and we're not fixing their trauma. Anytime there's a school shooting or 9-11, they rush psychologists in there 100 miles an hour. Nobody's rushing psychologists in to help black people get over the trauma. Don't need 40 acres in the mule. Don't need an apology. We need therapists. If you want to fix it, fix it. We can fix Afghanistan. We can fix China. We can fix Australia. We can get moon rocks. We can't fix trauma in our own country. So somebody has to suddenly say, okay, Bite the bullet. They're going to call us where they're going to call us, but let's fix it. I want to fix it. I don't want to shame you, scream on you, call you names. I want to legitimately fix it. And that's my goal. My position on racism is if you, as whatever race you are, don't want to like me because I'm black, we'll make it about me. I'm okay with that. I am okay with any person, regardless of their nationality, white, black, Spanish, or Asian, or Indian, deciding they don't want to like me because I'm black. There's black people who don't like me. There's white people, Spanish people, Asian people, Indian people who don't like me because I'm black. I am so okay with that. My only request is, if you want to be a racist, thumbs up. Please stop applying for the police force in urban settings. Please stop applying to be school teachers in the inner cities. Please stop, stop. don't come work around us. Go out to whatever city where it's 95% white and is 95% Indian or 95% whatever you are, Go be a police officer there. Go be a school teacher there. Hate black folks from the hills or wherever you want to be. Don't come to Compton. Don't come to New York City. Don't come to Atlanta. Don't come to DC and say, I want to be a cop in this city and not like black people. I am so okay with you not liking me. Stop trying to take a job where it puts you in control of if I live or die, if I become educated or not. Go live with who you want to live with. You can't, I don't have the right to tell you you have to like or love me because of the law. Don't need that. You don't want to like me? Kick rocks. But stop coming here as a local cop. Because if you know you don't like me, it's going to at some point come to a conflict and, oh, you got a gun and I don't. Or you're the principal and it has to make the decision about my life and you're always going to lean towards the size that you, that you don't like me. So again, I'm cool with racism. Okay with it. 
I'm just not okay with the racist taking a job that puts him in control over the lives of the people that he doesn't like. We know exactly where the trauma and the angst and the disappointment and the hurt feelings and the anger comes from. 400 years of slavery. Like I said, I'm not arguing slavery. I don't agree. I'm happy. I'm not happy about it, but I'm not going to argue the, the premise of slavery. What I'm going to argue is the treatment that American slaves received. I oh, believe sure. it was some of the most heinous, unnecessary, barbaric treatment that you could do to other people. And that is what causes the strife and the issues today. It wasn't just mm -hmm. that you had slaves. The way that they were treated was just so appalling and unnecessary that it set a standard and a mindset so far out. Now we're trying to get the generations to come back into reality. When you started like a black is nothing, I'll cut open a pregnant woman's stomach in a second and I'll sell them off, I'll rape them, I'll kill them, I'll drown them, I'll beat them, I'll whatever, treat them like dogs. That is the treatment of the people. Mm -hmm. The treatment of my people, which created the trauma, which goes back to what we're saying today. There's never been trauma-informed care for that. Mm -hmm. People come back from wars, they get counseling. <clears throat> they come from shooting centers, they get counseling. People after 9-11 get counseling. There's been no holistic counseling for people who suffered that type of, and I say people, I'm talking about my folks, who suffered what is clearly in the books. It's not a, it's not a did it happen. My question is, when are we going to treat it? Because if you don't treat it, guess what? It just gets worse. And where, where in America have we sat down and said, okay, we had slavery. It was whatever amount of years ago. Nobody here wants to re-enslave anybody in theory. And so let's talk about treatment for the people who came from that place. If you have a, if you have a disease and you have a baby, there's a 99% chance your baby's going to be born with that same disease. Then if that baby has a baby, it's hereditary. It's genetics. Same thing with trauma. If my grandfather was tortured to the point of being stressed out, he's going to raise my father under that same mindset, who's going to raise me <laughs> under that same mindset. So at some point, we're not trying to read and undo. We have to say, when can we bring in treatment to help people get past? And this is on both sides. Mm -hmm. White folks got their version or whatever they're dealing with. Black folks got their version. Let's treat everybody. We need to treat everybody with this, this counseling of some sort to say, okay, it happened. It was horrendous. Let's treat it. This black. But to treat it is to acknowledge it. Yep. So it's like, we don't want to acknowledge it because if we acknowledge it, they're going to call us racist. They're going to call us devils. They're going to call, forget what they're going to call you. They're calling you that anyways. Yeah. Let's let not the next generation call you that. So you've got this piece where you're trying, where you're helping prisoners better themselves and change their mindset so they can elevate themselves out of the, out of this situation. And a disproportionate number of those prisoners happen to be black young men, right? You, you want to transform the prison system and the justice system because it's an injustice system that's tied to money and not really justice and fairness, right? Where you've got all that piece. I've heard you talk before about how do you get to the young, uh, the young kids before they get to the place where you ended up when you were 18. I know we've talked about that in, in Genius Network a little bit. And how do you, what's the formula for changing the, 
the path the kids are given when they live in, in, in a tough situation. Talk about that for a little bit. I mean, prisoners come from two places. Prisoners or criminals come from two places. From prison, or they come from elementary school. Only two places they come from. We can right now pull up a graph and say, okay, this many kids in the city of Cleveland are failing the third grade. This many kids are failing the fourth grade, which is an indicator that if you fail the third and fourth grade math and science, you're not gonna graduate high school. And if, so these thousand kids were failing third grade math and science. It's a given fact that they're not, 95% of them are not gonna graduate high school because they're not gonna catch up. So we just said we have a thousand kids who eight years from now will be in the street with no education, no opportunity, no access to make money. I'm gonna tell you the rule of the street, it's called you must eat. So I got a thousand kids out in the streets with no education and no, no, no way to make money. So they're gonna do it illegally. So you already know to build a thousand cells. Instead of saying we got a thousand kids who are in route and we got eight years to circumvent this, we're not. You fix the American prison system by fixing public schools. You have these same kids who become adult criminals in school at five, six, and seven years old from seven in the morning to four in the afternoon, every day, five days a week. That is the ideal time to teach these young folks how to do and be better, how to actually deal with the circumstances that they're living in, how to deal with the circumstances that they're facing, and how to get over the hump two, three, four years down the road. I'm saying, stop pretending like, okay, I'm just going to teach him the ABCs, but he lives in a war zone. I couldn't imagine my son growing up in Chicago right now. I'd be horrified. They have over 730 murders in one year. They have over 3,500 people shot. And that's 4,000 people affected by gun violence. What are the odds that my son will be one of those kids? For whatever the reason. So we're not saying, hmm, how do we fix that? We spend millions and millions, if not billions of dollars, to police them and incarcerate them. At what point do we spend some of the money on preventing? If there's no preventative measures, then all we're going to do is just keep either burying or locking them up. Into what? Do you run out of them? Mm-hmm. Get to play? At some point, we have to, as forward-thinking adults say, we have 735 murders in one city, majority Black people. That's a problem. Nobody says it's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because the people in charge, hey, that's that's their problem. It's an American problem. There's no place in the country of America where there's 735 white kids who got gunned down. There's no place. There's no there's no place in, the, in America where there's six percent dropout rates in high schools and suburb, suburbs. This doesn't exist. There's no place in America where sixty percent of white kids are failing out of any school. Or four, no city with 4,000 people shot that is all white, but it's acceptable. This reinforces and perpetuates that you don't matter. Mm-hmm. This reinforces and perpetuates, you know something? Y'all can, 735 people shot and killed in one city year. Tell me what, tell me where in America there's been 735 white people shot and killed in a year on a five year span. So why is it acceptable? In a country, the smartest, biggest, brightest, toughest country on the planet. Cool, we don't have the answer today. But if we can put people on the moon to get rocks, them same people can come to the situation room and say, yo, how do we fix this? How many cabinet meetings were there on stopping deaths in Chicago? 
Yeah. But, no, you know, you know, we're we're entrepreneurs and we're in an entrepreneurial group and we think about solutions. You know, a lot of the departments that are supposed to be responsible for this, the elected leaders, the the bureaucracy of the social services system, the bureaucracy of the education system, it's not necessarily a you know about creating a solution though, is it? It's it's you know there, there, there's something else there. This has easily been since the 70s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, we're talking about 50 years. 50 years of government can't fix one problem. Yeah. Okay, we got the right to go to better schools in the 60s. So for 50 years, we haven't fixed the problem of public schools. But yet still, we have all kinds of advanced technology. My, I can go on my phone Hit a couple buttons and have a have my car pull up out front with coffee in it. We can go this far with technology, but we can't teach little black kids how to read and write. So I get to the point to say, okay, is it negligence or just we don't care? Now I'm not taking away the the responsibility of the parents who have these kids. If you're if you're two parents with kids and you don't know what you're doing, however you got there, I'm not going to dispute that. You are some part culpable. You wanted to have two, three, four kids and couldn't know how to raise them. I'm not even gonna argue that part. What I'm saying is, I'm not gonna blame, it's partially their fault, but I'm not gonna say they're responsible for fixing their own problem. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. If your toilet stopped up and your kids did it, you're still gonna call the plumber. You're not gonna make the kid fix it. Your kid stuffed the towel down the toilet, stuffed up. Stuffed orange pills on the toilet, it's stuffed up. Kids throw stuff in the toilet when they're babies, it's stuffed up. You call the plumber. You don't make the kid become a plumber. So these parents in these neighborhoods are wrong, whatever you want to call wrong, fine, I'll take that. Let's call the plumber. Right. That's all. You know, when, yeah, you know I, I think of the parallel you're talking about when you have these kids who can't read, can't write, can't eat. And then they take to the streets to kind of, that's the solution to the problem for them that they could find, right? It's much like what our friend Joe Pollard says that often addiction is the solution to something else. It seems to me that taking to the streets, joining a gang, getting involved in figuring out a way to survive, and that happens to be on the streets, is the solution to the problem. And they're being penalized for the only solution that they can, they can figure out and we're not dealing with the root cause issue that can stop them from peddling whatever they have to peddle on the street. I'll tell you this. If you and your two brothers came home from school, your, your dad passed, and your mom's not there. If you came home from school and there's no food, what you gonna do? You're gonna figure it out somehow. <laughs> How you gonna figure it out? I mean, okay, what's the solutions? What are your options? You come home from school, dad's not coming home, mom's checked out. Where are you gonna get food from? You got three teenage, two teenagers and a nine-year-old. You're like, yo, we hungry. Forget about clean clothes, forget about heat, forget it. We hungry. You three boys, now let's, I'm gonna take you out of Canada and I'm gonna put you in Baltimore. Where down at the corner, there's people selling drugs. You're not gonna start out as a drug dealer. You gonna go down and see the drug dealer like, hey, Bob, you know, my, my mom checked out, my dad died, can we get some bucks? And he'll give you 20 bucks for you and your brother to eat. Today he'll give you 20 bucks, tomorrow he'll give you 20 bucks, the next he'll keep giving you money. 
I'm going to tell you something a guy named Selvin Brown said. Because all the pastors went out and talked to the kids, and they couldn't understand why the, why the, when the pastors showed up, the good people, why they kept following the drug dealers. And one of the drug dealers told them, when that kid gets off the bus at the afternoon, I'm there to walk him home. When he ain't got no food at night, I give him money to eat. When he has holes in his shoes, I give him, I give him new shoes. When his father's beating his mother, we step in. I'm there, you're not, we win, you lose. Period. I don't care how good you are, we're here, you're not, we win, you lose. So if you- That drug dealer, that, that drug dealer is the replacement for my Jesuit priest. If that drug dealer started giving you money to pay for the stuff and giving you support, you don't have an allegiance to him. And at some point, you're gonna go from identifying to collaborating. And whether it's the older brother, I'm gonna make it out here with you because you gotta go borrow money every day. Like, yo, bro, I ain't got no problem feeding you, but damn, you old enough to be out here and make some money too. Take this, watch out, do something. Now your older brother's out there. And if the older brother's out there, it's only matter before you go out there. But again, the law of you must eat is real. And we have to say to ourselves, at what point do we wanna fix the problem? How does the whole Black Lives Matter movement play into this? Black Lives Matter movement is now created because throughout time, we've had a lot of movements to save and rectify black people. Going all back, we can go back to different slaves and different Frederick Douglass all the way through. You know what I'm saying? Every black leader who rose up, Mecca Evers, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, go down the list, has all been murdered. Yep. If you rose up and said you want to leave black people out of despair and into a better place, you got murdered. Then once flat out murder wasn't accessible, they decided locking people up. So in the 70s, Black Panthers, the Mile Miles, the Cortel Pro program, they started locking people up. We're just going to lock you up. If we can't murder you, we'll lock you up. You will not lead black people into another state of mind because we need them oppressed and in that state in that state that they're in. So now here we are in 2020. And every black person, even though white people might not get this, we know if you try to be a black leader, you're gonna end up dead. So nobody wants to be the black leader. Nobody wants to be MLK. Nobody wants to be Malcolm X and dead. So they created this one massive organization that everybody's is an umbrella. If this was the 70s or the 60s, it'd be part of it would be church, part of it would be Muslims, part of it would be Black Panthers, part of it would be back to Africa, it would be five separate movements, which will get you what? Five different dead Black folks. Yep. Band together, by necessity, there's no leader. This is technically eight different movements merged into one. Right. So out of necessity of not getting murdered, nobody wants to be the leader. Whereas that's why one group says we hate police. One group says we protest peacefully. One group says we protest non-peacefully. One group says we loot. One group says we burn. One group says we march. So it's like to the to the public is one group, but in reality it's 10 groups merged into one. And it's come like that because where's Malcolm X? Where's Martin Luther King? Where's Megan Evers? And you just go down the list all day. Yeah. Why are they dead? because they try to lead black people to another state of mind. I believe for all groups, all countries, all situations, it can be solved, but first it has to be some uncomfortable conversations. And the adults who are so unwilling to have the uncomfortable conversation is the problem. It's mm -hmm. not the solution that we can't get to. 
we can't get through the uncomfortable conversations of, you know something? We did you dirty. Or you know something? We didn't play fair. Or you know something? Yeah, we did throw about 4,000 people in jail unjustly. Or we did hang 8,000 people over the course of taking whatever. You can't go back. You can't fix it. But until we're willing to sit down and have the uncomfortable conversation about what actually happened, we'll never get to a solution. So whether your country, this country, prisons, or whatever it is, there has to be an uncomfortable conversation before you get to a solution. If you want to expand your company, you're going to have to fire some people. Because if some people in your company can't go to the next level. If you want to keep those people, you'll never go to the next level. So your VP might not be smart enough for a 20% increase. I'm saying your accountant might not handle money at 100% increase, at 10x increase. So if you want to keep your accountant, you want to keep your VP, then you keep your business at the size of it. So having an uncomfortable conversation, letting go of people that you care for is a reality in growth. So here we are now with people in history, we have to have an uncomfortable conversation to grow. Mm -hmm. And people are so unwilling to have uncomfortable conversation for whatever reason. I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to be called out. I don't want to be made to look like a bad guy. So therefore, we stay stagnant. Some, some people don't want to change because they want to, they, they perceive, they want to hang on to what they got. And if they have to change, they might need to let go of some things that they think are, that they're entitled to for whatever reason. Uh, people who don't want to change will never make noise. But there's those of us who want change and we're in the majority. But as long as we want to change, but we don't want to have the conversation. There's some people who don't want to change and don't want the conversation. But there's those of us who wanted to change but don't want to have the conversation. Those are the people at fault. Those are the people who need to stand up and say, no, something, let's have the uncomfortable conversation so on the other side, we can get a victory. You can't, the only way to get through is to go through. Thank you everybody so much for listening to this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. If you'd like to learn more or get in touch with either Don or Andre, then you can always do so at any time at the links in the description of this episode. Make sure you leave a five-star rating. It truly does help us out a lot. And be sure to subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening again, and we will see you next time on the Amplifier Podcast.